Verse 1. morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 starting with verse 1 and the last Sunday we titled the message desperate situations and we looked at two healings that the Lord did and the ramifications of it Um, both parties were desperate you know they they needed help Uh, they needed aid they needed relief and you know people today need help too and the best place to go in a desperate situation is to the Lord Um, when it came to the end of the service, four people came forward to receive the Lord, which was really awesome. Today we're going to look at um, routineness and maybe taking the Lord's relationship for granted. Now, if we look at our lives and we look at relationships, it could be best friends, it could be spousal relationship, it could be parent-child relationship, we can get into these routines, you know, if we know each other for many years. And then what we can do over time is take each other for granted. And when we take each other for granted, things happen. And usually it's in a negative fashion. It's not in a positive fashion. However, today, I want to look at this based on how we can, at times, take our relationship with the Lord for granted. And we can do this. And sometimes Christians who have been Christians for a long time can fall into this easier than somebody who's a new believer. You know, when you're a new believer, you're on fire for the Lord. It's exciting. You want to know everything about God. Then you get introduced to the Christian community and you get introduced in the things that everybody does as Christians and you can fall into that staleness and stagnancy. Well, I believe that the disciples were walking with him at this point a long time and I believe that at some point there was some routineness in how they dealt with the Lord. Uh, Also, the religious leaders, you know, they saw the miracles and there was routineness there. Well, there's another miracle happening. And they also took the relationship Uh, with him for granted but most of all we have the presence of the son of god in our lives we have the indwelling of the holy spirit how does this apply to us two thousand years later and we'll take a look at that so let's jump in in verse one it says in those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat jesus called his disciples to him and said to them i have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So here's another, another miracle, another feeding. Now this is different than the one we covered not too long ago, in Mark chapter 6, the numbers are different. What they started out what was different. So this isn't the same miracle. And this might have happened several times over the course of the disciples' walk with the Lord. And maybe now it's becoming a little routine. The disciples are asking the same question. It's not sinking in. Well, how does this affect us? Oh, of course, we as Christians wouldn't take the Lord for granted, would we? <laughs> well... I did read this miracle, and I have to tell you, I read the first time, I'm just going to be honest here, 
little transparency from the pulpit. I read the first 10 verses, and I said, oh, another miracle of a few thousand people. How am I going to make this fresh on Sunday? It's very similar to the last one. I found myself falling into the same trap that I want to tell you about. Another miracle? Could you imagine being there and thousands of people are fed with a few pieces of bread and a few fish? And my attitude was, how am I going to make this fresh on Sunday? Brothers and sisters, if I have a problem with this and you have a problem with this, it's our problem. It's not the Lord's problem. That's how we get down the road of routineness and taking the Lord for granted. So that's a start. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, they've been with me three days. You know, they've been with me a while here. Probably their supplies ran low. Maybe some were underprepared and some might have been overprepared. And maybe they shared food with each other. But at this point, it's, it's pretty low. And some people at this point were fasting and not by choice. The Lord is always concerned with our well-being. He didn't say, ah, let them get over it. He didn't say, sit down and stop fidgeting. I have to teach you something. He said, I'm concerned about their well-being. And even today, in our lives, sometimes we have this attitude that the Lord doesn't see my situation. He does see the situation. As, as he was concerned with those people back then, he's also concerned with us today in many different ways. Body, mind, and spirit. Well, I'm sure they had jobs and family, these people, but they were really hungry for God's word. Now, here's the irony. They hungered so much for spiritual things, so much for God, that they neglected their physical hunger. And that, my friends, is the concept behind fasting. To deny the physical, to accentuate the spiritual, to hear better from God, to, you know, we're flesh and we're spirit. I have to tell you, in a lot of ways, when we become believers, it becomes more difficult. Because when we're living as heathens, we just have one thing in mind, the flesh, gratify the flesh. When we become Christians, we're still stuck in these fleshly bodies, but there's a whole other element of us that comes alive, and that's the spiritual. And that's where the war comes in, in Romans 7, you know, the Apostle Paul, right? This desiring to do the things that please God and then messing up in the flesh. And it happens. In American culture, it's all about the physical, the sensual, the here and now, the temporary, quick gratification. And when you try to talk to somebody about God and his love for you or them or the individual and all the promises he has, and we've all experienced it, haven't we? Some people just turn their nose up at you. Eh, I could take it or leave it. That's shocking. That's, that's astounding. I believe that the United States is going to go through another shaking. I remember when 9-11 took place, and I was at Ground Zero, um, churches started swelling. They started filling up. Extra seats were being put out. Within a year, complacency set in. Some of those people stayed, but a lot of them just left again. I believe because God loves us, he's going to shake this nation once more before the end comes to bring people closer to the Lord. And the question is, to those of us who are in the household of faith, would we hang out with the Lord today for three days straight? Do we have schedules? Do we have projects? Do we have vacations planned? Do we have things that maybe we've planned to do? If the Lord came bodily and said, follow me, would we do it? Or would we start making excuses? You don't understand, on my Google phone, the calendar says that the next three days are really bad, Lord. Can you come back next month? Right? How close are we willing to listen to him? How much time are we willing to give him for him to speak to us? What are we running after in this life? Is it really of the Lord 
Or are we just putting a Christian stamp on it and making ourselves feel better and justifying it? Well, verse 4, he says, or the disciples say, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, I love to use parallel scriptures, you know, if it's appropriate, applicable. Matthew, Luke, John, you know, they often have this parallel and, and the other disciples saw it and they looked at it from their vantage point. And sometimes there was a few disciples that said things at the same time. Well, in Matthew fifteen thirty three, some of the disciples also said, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed such a great multitude? This is shocking. How many miracles had they seen by now? And they're asking this question. Still looking at their circumstances instead of looking at the Lord. How many of us do that? You've been a Christian long enough. I've been a Christian long enough. I've seen some amazing things. Do we at times start looking at our circumstances and, and pouting and acting like children at times? I've done it. I mean, did they think that this was a one-time parlor trick that the Lord did and he had nothing left in the, in the, in the basket or something, in the tank? What did they think? Did they think the Lord was going to fail them? I don't know. Well, a parallel account, I want to read this to you because think about um, big picture, Old Testament and New Testament. If you turn to John with me, John's Gospel, 6, 26. This is a different time, so this isn't the same account. And you'll actually see a flip here where the people, in, in Mark's account, we see that the people are so desiring spiritual things and they, they neglected their physical. Well, in this account, a different account, the people were really only looking at the physical, feed me, feed my belly, and they weren't thinking of the spiritual, right? So in John six twenty six, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's trying to change the channel from just wanting their bellies filled. And I tell you, you ever been really hungry and your, your stomach is just, it's annoying you. It's just this deep pit pain in the pit of your stomach. And it's, it just wants you to throw something in there and swallow it so the pain can go away. Right? Because we're, we're fleshly beings. But Jesus is trying to turn the channel and say, stop thinking about your bellies. Thinking about, thinking about spiritual things. Think about being filled spiritually. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
This is an interesting point because you can eat bread, you can eat steak, fish, you can salad, and uh, anybody getting hungry right now? Because I am. <laughs> and you just fill yourself up with good food, and if you have the money, you can buy organic and all that kind of jazz. And you can eat that for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, but when you die and you try to shove that food into a corpse, it's not going to do anything for them. Jesus is the bread from heaven. When we partake of him, and we commune with him. That is the spiritual food. So it nourishes us while we're here, but also when we die and pass into the next life, all the way through eternity. I think, quite frankly, that's a better deal. You know, you look at the, your food and you turn it around, it has nutrition information. Look at the bread of life. Uh, this, is, this is good stuff. And Jesus is saying that's what you need to partake of. To live by God's daily bread in the form of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to... Mark's Gospel. Again, I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. In Matthew 16.1, which is also... Well, let me just read 11 through 13, and then I'll jump to Matthew 16.1. It says, And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Everybody's looking for a sign. Even today, there's this signs and wonders movement. I've got to go from sign to sign, from hair-raising experience to hair-raising experience. That can be exhausting. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. They were testing him, but he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Matthew 16, 1 tells us it wasn't just the Pharisees, but it was the Sadducees. And later Jesus says, beware of the leaven of not only the Pharisees, but Herod, and of course the Sadducees. So I'm going to talk about those three groups, and we'll wrap that up at the end. But what are they talking about here? This is a specific sign. They already knew he did miracles. How do I know that? Because I already taught it further back. I did parallel scripture. And the religious leaders, how do you deny that somebody's raised from the dead? How do you deny that somebody was lame, and all of a sudden they can stand and walk? How do you deny somebody was blind and they can see? You can't. So what did they do? They said, oh, he just does those miracles by Beelzebub. He, he's, he's the dark lord raising these people up. That was their answer to try to negate the miracle. So they already knew that he did miracles, but they were looking for a specific sign. You see, they also got into a routine of seeing the Lord do so many miracles and, and the joy and the happiness of the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and it must have been a lot of laughter and fair, fanfare. And they got used to it and their hearts became hardened to it. They started to take the Lord of glory for granted. Now, I don't think they had a whole lot of social programs back then, but if they did, they, they wouldn't have been tapping out that budget because Jesus was fixing everybody. Nobody had to go to social services, right? He was taking care of everybody, but they took it for granted. They wanted a different sign specifically. What they wanted is, Jesus, show us a sign, deliver us from Rome, and then we'll believe you. There's some today that you can show them evidence. You know, they, they can scoff, and you might have people close to you, and and they see miracles in your own life. And you're trying to win them to the Lord. And they're still demanding new things. Well, I have to tell you, God's not a magician. He's not about to be pulling bunnies out of a top hat. And then for my next trick, you know, I'm going to do something even better. That's not what he does. The signs were specific to show people the Messiah. That they all started the, you know, the prophecies in the Old Testament. And even the healings 
were spoken about in, in Isaiah in different scriptures. They were for a purpose. They weren't just so people could wow the audience, so Jesus could wow the audience. That's not what he came for. And even some in the church, again, if we take the Lord for granted, we can almost have a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude. And as believers, we can get into that, and it's not right. You know, we become so immersed in the Christian culture that we start falling back to our flesh and we, we lack that appreciation and gratitude that we should be having for the Lord. In Matthew 16, 4, he said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And I'll just briefly talk about the signs and wonders movement today. I have news for you. In Second Thessalonians and Revelation, Satan will be inspiring the Antichrist. He'll be this magnanimous person, this charismatic figure. And Satan will inspire him not only with his personality, but he'll also be able to do miracles. He'll be doing lying signs and wonders. Remember in, like, you, like we were there, remember in Egypt with uh, Moses and he, he did a miracle and Pharaoh's magicians duplicated to a lesser extent some of the signs that Moses did? Satan has the power to do things. So today in Christianity, with this whole signs and wonders movement, what happens is those people are being set up for lying signs and wonders. So how do you tell the difference? Right? Pharaoh was duplicating what Moses did. And the Antichrist will will be this false messiah that rises up, and people will say, well, he's the messiah. Look, he's doing miracles. It's a case of the tail wagging the dog. I have to tell you that faith is not always looking for signs. Because then we become God, prove it to me. We become the prove it to me people in the church. And I'll tell you this, that I've seen some awesome things that God has done. But what's far more rewarding is to live day by day with the Lord and have a relationship with him. Instead of chasing emotional experience to emotional experience, that can be a huge letdown. Amen? All right. Everybody's awake. That's good. If anybody's sleeping, just give them a nudge and bring them back. Now, I'm not going to go too deeply into this, but in Matthew 16, Jesus, and I covered this when we did Matthew's gospel, he basically says to the religious leaders, any of you guys who go out to sea or seafaring people, um, what is it, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. And I went through the whole meteorological thing. I'm not going to do it again. But basically, he says, you can design the signs of the sky, but you religious leaders who've, who've Memorize scripture, you can't discern the signs of the times, the signs that God did give you. Daniel's, Daniel 9, the 69 weeks were running out, the Shabuah in the Hebrew, uh, to the Messiah's actual advent and you know, the whole thing that led to the crucifixion. Genesis 49.10, the political situation where this, the scepter or the right of the Jewish people to uh, adjudicate capital cases was taken away. Uh, Haggai 2, 7 and 8, where the nations would be shaken and the desire of all nations would come to the temple. And this was euphemistic for the Messiah to actually grace the temple with his presence. These things all happen, and Jesus is like, what more do you need? You guys are hypocrites, says that in Matthew 16. They didn't want to believe it unless it was good for their lifestyle. Yeah, but we know all that. But vanquish Rome, and we'll be happy, and we will hail you as Messiah. And that was not the time. It's actually in our near future. It wasn't the time back then. He was to come as the lamb and the lion, but the lamb preceded the lion. And he says basically to them that, uh, we go back to Matthew as well, that only one sign, religious leaders, would be given from here, and that would be the sign of Jonah. 
And what did that mean? Well, it meant, number one, that Jesus was referring to Jonah as a real person. It meant that it was a miraculous sign that he got swallowed up by this, and we kind of talked about the biology and of, of sea creatures and how some of them actually capture air in their bodies and a person could actually be sustained and the larger like the whales um, didn't have enough strong enough digestive juices to dissolve a man but it dissolved krill and all that kind of stuff but the bottom line is this that the big great fish swallowed him took him down and then on the third day spit him back out on the shore and jesus is basically saying the sign of jonah i'm going to be crucified it's going to be emblematic of my death i'm going to go under Okay, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And guess what? They still didn't get it. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was on the cross, they were making fun of him. He was telling them right there that he had to go to the cross. Some people think that they're bothering me when they send me emails, and you never are. If you have questions about any of this stuff, please ask questions. Send us an email, um, you know, write it down, and we'd love to answer your questions if I'm going too fast with this for some. Verse 13, it says, and he left them. This is amazing. Sometimes the Lord would debate the religious leaders, as in Matthew 23. And sometimes he just said, you know what, it's not worth my time. And he just departed. You know, in ministry, there will be those that try to drag you down. They will try to tie up your time. It's endless arguments. There's just that type of personality. They're always arguing. You know, even, they'll even take the polemic, the, the opposing view that they don't agree with, just to argue about the other view. And there's, there's just a time and a place to say, you know what, I just, I'm, not, I'm not engaging in this discussion. And that's what Jesus did. He left. Verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven, or the yeast, of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Did you not perceive? Did you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? So again, the disciples, you know, maybe their, their thing was, wherever we go, whatever we do, you know, the Lord just fixes it. You know, again, this kind of routine thing where he's really trying to train them so that when he ascends into glory, that they can be the pillars of the church and start what he was explained to them, this new concept called the church. But they, become, they were becoming dull. They would see the things and it would just, do you ever do that? You ever, okay, maybe this happens a little bit more in marriage, and uh, I'm guilty of it. My wife will say something to me, and she says it loud and clear, and she might have said it twice, sometimes three times. Half an hour later, I ask her the question, and she gets annoyed with me. I know I heard it. I know I saw her lips moving. Where was I? You know what I'm saying? So the ladies are laughing at this one. Because I'm being dull. I'm being dense. I'm not, you know, it's coming in but it's, it's not registered. It's somewhere back there, and I can't recall it and bring it to the forefront. Disciples seem to do this with the Lord. In verse 16, it said they reasoned. The Greek word is dialogazanta. That word dialogue is where we get the word dialogue. 
And that word can mean to dialogue or dispute. Understand, the disciples' argument about who didn't take the bread was not a spiritual endeavor. Jesus was trying to explain to them spiritual things about the leaven, the teachings, the false doctrine of these religious leaders. And you know, you see some of that today too. Be careful of that. It's destructive. And they were thinking, oh, yeah, there's only one loaf on the, bre- on the boat. You know, Matthew's saying, I told Thomas to take the bread. And Thomas is saying, listen, I was supposed to carry the water. I told Peter to take the bread. And you could just see Jesus going, it's just still, they still don't get it. Now, that's conjecture. I don't know if that really happened. But when we're not walking in the Spirit, and we're not seeking actively the things of God, what do we do? We fall back into the natural. We, we all have natural abilities, don't we? And again, we come to the Lord, we're excited about God, and, and our, our, our motives and our heart is right. But when we start taking for granted, when we start getting into a routine, what do we do? We fall back on what's easier, our natural abilities. Right? But we can't do that. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And people think, oh, walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh is doing bad things. It's not. It's walking in the flesh. It's walking in this when we should be walking in the spirit. Right? It could be innocuous. It's not really, may not be a bad thing, but we're walking in the flesh when God calls us to walk in the spirit. Verse 17. I'll go through it again. Jesus says, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Did you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Now, Jesus said some unflattering things to his disciples. And if we read the Gospels enough, we understand that. And it's quite possible at times that he hurt their feelings. It's quite possible at times that he insulted them and they were frustrated. But they stuck with it. Because it was that important to them. They wanted to get it right. And today, you know, we, we have this attitude in, in our culture that if we don't get something right quickly, we abandon it. We, we, we cut our losses, so to speak. But we should never do that with God. Remember, did it take the disciples days and weeks and months to get it right? No. It took them years. And they were with the best discipler ever, the Son of God. And it still took them years to get it. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling in your walk, or you, you have a lot of head knowledge, people do that, come to me, I go to Bible studies, I do this, I do that, and it's not transferring from the head into the hands and the feet, or the lips. It just kind of stays in there, and I know this, and Isaiah says this, and Jeremiah says that, but, but we're not living it. So at some point, that head knowledge has to transfer into the body, right? They have to go together. Um, not just words, but actions as well. So I want to encourage you. Um, maybe we're being prideful. Maybe we do have all this head knowledge. And we think we're all that, but we're really not walking. That's a heart check. Or maybe some of us are really struggling in our walks. And we're getting down on ourselves, and we shouldn't. Because if we look at the disciples, it took them years to get it right. And even then, was it Galatians? That the apostle Paul and Peter actually had an argument about something that had to do with um, ceremony and uh, Peter was wrong, and Paul rebuked him to his face. So even Peter still made mistakes. These guys were not perfect. And I just want to say this lastly, is that it's easy for me and us to poke fun at their humanity. But i got to tell you, if you put any of us here as one of the 12, people today would be reading and laughing about us, wouldn't they? <laughs> right? Because we would, we would do the same thing. We would do this. We're, not, we're no better than they were. 
Um, verse 19. When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. This is important because this is the way relationship with the Lord is supposed to be. We take his leading. And sometimes we do things and we get ahead of the Lord. And then we mess it up. And we say, gee, maybe I didn't put enough prayer into that. But Jesus said, when I broke the bread and I multiplied, the Lord speaking, how many did you take up? When I did this again, how many did you take up? And that's the way it's supposed to work. We take our leading from the Lord, and then what do we get? We get a bounty, and it's an awesome thing. But we have to get our leading from the Lord. And he, he allows us to be... One of the things we prayed about actually before um, the service started, the, the pastors and different people in my office, we always pray before service. And I just prayed, Lord, let us serve with joy. It's such a joyous thing when God multiplies and you're holding... And these were not like little, little Red Riding Hood baskets. If you look at the Greek word, these were like almost like laundry baskets. And all this stuff was in there and that's not even what they started with. So that's the exciting thing. The Lord, we take his leading and then we respond to that and we're blessed. And the Lord wants us to be blessed as we work in his fields. Amen? Amen. The good news in Matthew 16 tells us that they finally understood. And let me encourage you with that. If we're truly walking with the Lord and the desire is there, we will finally understand. Matthew 16, 12. It says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, which they were focused on, but of the doctrine of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, the Herodians were out there too, so I'm going to look at three groups. How do we bring this around to today's messages? This is the last verse that we're reading here. Is number one, the distinction between leaven and bread, symbolically in the scripture. Let's start with the easy one. Jesus is the bread of life. Again, back then, they didn't have supermarkets. You had basic staples to keep you alive to give you energy, protein, carbohydrates, fats, however they made the, the, you know, the, the staple. So bread was a, a universally understood staple of, of diet in that area. So Jesus makes an analogy and says, I am the bread of life. Just as bread nourishes you physically, I will nourish you spiritually. Right? So let's, let's put that aside. Now, he talks to them about the leaven. Beware of the leaven or the yeast. Leaven is not bread. Leaven by itself cannot sustain anybody. But leaven is put into bread to make it rise. And what does it do? It's, it's a putrefying, it's a parasitic um, microorganism that gets in and eats the carbohydrates and gives out gases, and then the bread rises. But the interesting thing about leaven is you could have a, some dough that has leaven in it. And then you can take a, a clean a batch of dough and put it with that, and that becomes leavened. And it just, just, just keeps going on because it keeps multiplying. Leaven is understood in the scripture as a picture of sin because sin does the same thing. It, it feeds off of a host, and it, it putrefies, and it spreads. So what Jesus was saying, look out for that teaching. Look out for that hypocrisy because it will get in and it will spread. And in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul talks about certain sins spreading in the church. That's not a good thing. What if we were all gossipers? You know, what if we were all fornicators? And what if we were all everything? 
and it just spread throughout the church, where would it leave our church? He says, be careful of that leaven. Bad behavior, if I do something bad, I don't want to tell you guys about it. I want to say, Lord, please help me deal with this because I'm really being a hypocrite right now. I don't want to go out and say, hey, everybody, this is what you should be doing because I'm doing it. That's when you spread sin in the church versus personal repentance and asking for forgiveness. So we get those two things straight. In the Passover season and in offerings, the leaven had to be removed, okay, because it was symbolic of sin. What we also see is that all three groups were, to varying degrees, all associated at some point with the things of God. The Herodians thought that they were uh, kind of political messiahs. There was a, yeah, a close, a, a small association with the things of God. The Pharisees and Sadducees were both staunch religious groups that said, no, our way is right. And they, had, they supposedly wanted to be close to God. However, there was a routineness there with the things of God, with the priests, with the temple, with the holy books, with the law. And what happened was a, a self-reliance set in and only, that was only left of God was a facade or a, or, or a name, but it really wasn't true. Let's look at these groups briefly before we close. Number one, the Pharisees. They were of a religious order. Now think of today. Pharisees are gone. No, there's no Pharisees left. Right? God did us a favor and got rid of that group. However, there's other groups that act like them. So let's look at this. Pharisees, a religious order. They were legalists. You ever deal with a legalistic Christian? You just feel like you, you can't be under their gaze because they're always looking at you to scrutinize you. What you wear, you know, how you dress, what you eat, how you talk. and Just legalistic Christians. Pharisees were legalists. They were also religious hypocrites because they said, do as I say, but not as I do. Don't watch what I'm doing. Just listen to me. They demanded a sign that suit their, suit their desires. Now, today, we can look at it as old wineskin Christianity, right? This is the way God did it years ago, so it must be the way he's doing it today, and they force that. They try to force that instead of being open to a new work of the Holy Spirit. There's a picture of dead religion, um, and they lose their grip on relevance. They become irrelevant, but they try to fight and hold on to relevancy, but it's just not there because it's not a work of the Spirit. B, the Sadducees. Sadducees were also a religious order. They were the elites. They were elitists. Now, this is weird. They supposedly are God-fearing people, but they denied the presence of angels, demons, the resurrection, or anything supernatural. What do they think was going to happen when they died? You you kind of want to interview them. They're not around either anymore. Parallels today. Today, probably you can look at them as the liberal theologians of the day. It's cold, sterile, powerless religion. It suits them to have a name, of a form of a religion or a denomination, but they think that you're weird if you have a relationship with God. Imagine that. Now, they could be clergy, and they could teach this, you know, Jesus was just a man. They take the power of Je- out of Jesus. They take the power out of the Trinity, and then you say, you know, I have a relationship with God. What's, that? What's up with that? You know, just be part of our denomination and be quiet. And that's what happens. Now, remember, relationship with God started from Genesis in the Bible all the way to Revelation. God always says, I want a relationship with my people. I love them. Sadducean religion has no semblance of biblical Christianity, but they claim to be Christian. Both of these groups can be stuffy, sanctimonious. They can't deal with the changing culture. They have no tolerance for people who have piercings, who have tattoos, who are divorced, homosexuals, biracial marriage, the drug culture, you name it. They cannot deal with it. They want, and I've heard people say this, I've gone to that church and I felt, I felt like I was unwelcome immediately. 
our attitude is, I don't care who comes in. You know, I want everybody to hear the gospel, and I think that's what Jesus wanted. Right? Both of these religions have a form of godliness but deny its power. Think about that. That's found in 2 Timothy 3. A form of godliness, a very weak strain, but they deny its power. There's no power in it because the Holy Spirit's not involved. Now let's look at the Herodians. Worldly, political, powerful, uh, pretense of a faith, and humanistic. Parallel today is (laughs) is that those that... They want to see the world change through putting the right people in political office. I probably offended a few people, so I'm going to go for broke here. <laughs> but, but take heart. I've often done the scripture, done my message, read it over and said to myself, you're a hypocrite. I've been convicted by my own messages. You're a jerk, you know. I've offended myself, so take heart. <laughs> I can see... I can see Christians who adhere so heavily to their political parties in some of this, right? Liberal Christians, conservative Christians, you know, sometimes people, and it's not all the times, but I'm a liberal. And everything I follow politically is against what God's word says. How does that jive? Well, it gets better. I'm a conservative. I've talked to, and I think this is even stranger, because I tend to lean, and, and my wife and I, you can't nail us down. We kind of like some things about both parties, and we don't even like to be labeled because we think both parties are just become so corrupted. But I met people that are of the conservative persuasion that it's amazing. They have family values. A lot of things that they do kind of parallel what's on the scripture, but when you talk to them, and they'll admit they have no relationship with the Lord. I don't get it. What's morality based on? Morality is based on God's word. So did I offend everybody here? Some people, you know, <laughs> it's okay. And, and we, can't, we can't adhere ourselves to a political party. We can't adhere ourselves or have any loyalty to anyone or anything except to Jesus Christ. If I take, if each one of us has an interview, we'll talk about who we are, what social club we're part of, what, you know, what race we are, what this we are, what socioeconomic background we are. And we, we kind of pigeonhole ourselves into these little boxes. And I got to tell you this too, and uh, you know, this is probably why I'll never be on radio. Um, <laughs> I'm not loyal to Calvary Chapel. If they start going weird, we'll change the name and it'll cost us a few bucks, but it's okay. My loyalty has to lie with Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? Jesus said, be careful of the leaven. When you start listening to weird teachings, when you start letting it tickle your ears, and I've heard this expression, well, I chew up the, you know, I, I chew it up and I, I spit out the bad stuff and I swallow the good stuff. Well, what's, what if there's arsenic in there? You really want to take that chance? Right? I'm certainly not going to do that. When we start giving our loyalties and allegiances to all these stupid categories that Western culture says, we become a very fragmented society in our, our nation. And even in Christianity, it's us, it's you. You know, real brief example. When Pastor Jason was teaching downstairs in the Bible study a few weeks ago in Bible college, we got into a, it was really an awesome discussion. Some of you were there. It was a heated discussion about a doctrine that had nothing to do with salvation. And, and it was very cool. We, we were, it was just very passionate. 
And my son was there. And on the drive home, my son said to me, you're friends with Pastor Jason. Why were you guys arguing? I said, and I taught him something. I said, son, that's the beauty of friendship. Because we hugged afterwards, and it, it's fine. I, I want him to teach next semester. You know what I'm saying? It's not heresy. It's just we don't agree on a particular topic, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, <laughs> but the bottom line was, I said, Josiah, that's what makes friendships. We can disagree but still be agreeable to each other. You know, this stuff about I'm on this side of the fence and you're on that side of the fence. Honestly, I think that's what some of this stuff was. Jesus was saying to his disciples, listen, you've got to cross all lines. You know, all these boundaries that society sets up, Jesus came to break those boundaries so that we could become one in Christ. And, and it, listen, it, it, it holds true 2,000 years later. So this is what happened as we close. They all became horizontal focused instead of vertical focused. They were too busy looking at each other and they never looked up at the Lord. And we can do that. We can live our lives completely. Special forces, when they go out and in some of these areas, they actually hide in tall trees and they are very still. And the special forces can be there for hours and people walking by and they never look up to see the guys hiding in the tree until they're ready to strike. Right? So we're very horizontal focused. We can be. And that's what they were. They were earth-tethered, but they all, all three groups disappeared from history. God removed them from history. And now we just read about them in the scripture. Our relationship, routine, taking for granted. Routineness can lead to lack of proactivity, stagnancy, and then that's where a prime target for levinous situations taught by people. And we can get uh, infested with that. The disciples, too, you know, they were more respectful than the religious leaders, but their behavior came out when they started to take Jesus' miracles for granted. I want to read, because I think what's important here is really us today and how we leave this place and take this to heart. Warren Wiersbe's book, uh, Be Diligent, about this subject. I love this, page 96. He says, God's people often have a tendency to forget his blessings. And we see this in Psalm 103, 1 through 2 reminding myself to remember God's blessings. It says he meets our needs, but then when the next problem arises, we complain or become frightened. As long as we are with him, we can be sure he will care for us. It would do us all good to pause occasionally and remind ourselves of his goodness and his faithfulness. So we know, everyone in this room, we know the promises of God. We know that the promises of God are for us collectively, but also individually. We know that God saves us from judgment. I enjoy that. I think that's an awesome thing. We know that we have everlasting life and we have the ability to have abundant life while we're here on this earth. And the question is, am I taking the Lord for granted? Am I taking his blessings for granted? And I would just ask, brothers and sisters, that we we take today at least some moments to reflect on our relationship with God, the fact that he's good to us, and make a commitment to be thankful and also be proactive in our faith. Let's pray.